Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. I was thinking through my week and and how I got here. I'm I'm still a little confused on how I actually got here. Last Sunday I preached in Winchester, Virginia, and, uh, and then we drove from Winchester, Virginia here and somehow we made it and uh, I'm just thankful we're here and uh, we made it with three kids in a van and uh, yeah we we made it it was uh, we were praying the whole way Lord just help us make it and uh, yeah so if I say something a little confusing this morning some of you don't agree with that's certainly not my fault that is the drive's fault all right so Anyways, it's a joy to be here. Thank you, Pastor Thompson, for inviting me to come, and I'm enjoyed about, uh, I'm just thrilled to, to be here this morning and share God's Word with you. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to look at verse number 21, where Peter comes to the Lord with a question. Matthew 18, verse 21, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Uh, My wife, she's an avid reader. She has always loved to read. In fact, I think last year she read 75 books. Uh, She told me she was going to slow down this year and only read about 50. And uh, I said, that's great. I'll keep working on the three I've had since college, you know. And uh, uh, it's always been that way. I guess uh, when, when, when my wife used to get in trouble as a kid, her parents would take her books away, you know. No more books for you. Uh, when I got in trouble as a kid, my parents gave me books to read, you know. Like, you need to read this, you know. And so uh, we were always kind of in polar opposite. And it works out because we drive everywhere that we go. And so it's a good use of time that as I'm driving, she will be reading a book. And I don't mind that because I enjoy looking out and uh, viewing the, the creation that God has given us, and I like seeing the scenes and all that. But every once in a while, we drive through um, a boring state, you know, uh, looking at you, Kansas. Like, there's just nothing there, you know. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. And so on those particular drives, I desire to, um, you know, have a conversation, you know. That way the the time goes faster, you know. But you don't want to be the guy that interrupts the good book, you know. No one likes that guy. And so, uh, so I've learned to ask the question, how's the book? Now, I could care less about the book. I don't care how the book is, don't care if it's worth reading or not. I'm just trying to get her to put down the book and have a conversation with me. And then maybe we can get to other topics like sports, you know. And so, and so, uh, so that's, that's my goal in asking the question. And, and one day we were driving through Kansas and I was tired of it. And then so I said, how's the book? And I immediately regretted asking the question. I've never seen my wife close a book so fast. I mean, she was like anticipating me asking the question like, yes. And she said, oh, Eric. You have got to read this book. I said, well, we both know that's not happening, so why don't you just tell me what it's about? I said, what, 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 what is the title of the book? She said, well, the title is The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. All right, well, right away I'm out, all right? Tidying up is not something I've been known to do, and I was raised Baptist, so magic is of the devil, you know? I mean, they get that witchcraft out of here. And uh, she said, well, well, the subtitle is The Japanese Secret to Decluttering and Organizing Your Life. I said, okay, what's the secret? I said, what? 
So we just said that the, the subtitle was the Japanese secret to decluttering and organizing your life. So what is the secret? Well, she starts thumbing through the book, looking for a highlight, you know, and, and she, she comes to this section. This is an I quote from the book. The key to cleaning out your space is knowing exactly what you want to keep and then getting rid of everything else. Wow, that's profound. I mean, <laughs> we paid someone to write that? Like, yeah, it seems kind of obvious. That's the very definition of cleaning up, you know? Like, yeah, you got to decide what you want, get rid of what you don't want. She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But how do you decide what you want to keep? Enlightening the conversation more, I said, I don't know. How? How do you decide? She said, well, this is where the author is kind of, well, this is what she's known for. It's her system. She says that you're to like pick an area or pick a, a section. So like, let's say you wanted to clean out your clothes. You would get all your clothes. You'd get them all into one big spot, see the enormity of all your stuff. And then you would take each item individually and you would hold it up and you would ask it, do you spark joy? And if the answer is yes, you keep it. If the answer is no, you get rid of it. Well, I had to pull over at this point in the drive because I am laughing so hard because all I can picture in my mind is going into my closet, grabbing out my socks, holding my socks up and saying, do you spark joy? <laughs> no, right? And I said, babe, if I did that, there wouldn't be anything left in my closet. She said, well, at least it'd be clean. Yeah. And... Uh, and so we joke about that still to this day. I mean, anytime, anytime my wife wants to buy something, I just say, I don't know, babe, not sparking much joy. And uh, it sparked a lot of joy in my bank account. For that, I am grateful. And so we joke about that. It's an inside joke in my family. But it does make me wonder how often we hold on to things in our life, even though they don't spark joy. We become attached to emotions like bitterness, anger, hurts and offenses, we, we store them away in the closet of our heart, even though they rob us of our peace, even though they don't make our day better, we just can't seem to let them go. I come to you today as the Apostle Paul came to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4 and verse number 31, and I say, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and malice be put away from you and be kind one to another tenderhearted, forgiving one another, for, for even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Paul said, you have been holding on to some bitter roots, and they are springing up the fruit of anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice amongst you. It is poisoning your life. And he says, listen, you have got to hold it up. You have got to see that it's robbing you of peace. It's not sparking joy. And you have got to, by the grace of God, get it out of your life and instead choose to be kind one to another, tenderhearted forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Simply put this morning, church, it's time to clean out the closet. It's time to clean out the closet. Now here in Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to the Lord with a question, and it's a good question. In fact, it's a question that had been asked for about 200 years prior to Jesus ever stepping foot on the soil. They had debated the question in the synagogue. They had talked about it in their homes, no doubt. What is the answer to this question? Peter's question is, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, how many times do I have to offer forgiveness before I'm allowed to hold on to the hurt? 
How many times do I have to forgive before I'm allowed to get even? How many times do I have to just say, well, no, it's all okay, before I'm allowed to plot my revenge? How many times do I have to forgive before I'm allowed to hold on to the hurt and make them hurt like they've made me hurt? Uh, Peter gives an answer. Seven times? Peter's being quite generous here. Like I said, in this discussion that had been going on, most of the rabbis taught that, uh, well, three times was enough. That after the third time, there was a loophole in the Torah that allowed you to hold grudges, right? But Peter doesn't say three times. Peter says seven times. Where does Peter get this number? Well, Peter's following a guy named Jesus. He knows Jesus is a little bit unconventional like the other rabbis in the day. And he has probably heard Jesus preach. Like he was probably in church when Jesus preached in Luke 17, a message about forgiveness where he says that if your brother trespassed against you seven times in a day and you turn to him and rebuke him, then you are to forgive him seven times in a day. Well, Peter's takeaway from that message was, um, so what about the eighth time? Like on the eighth time, am I allowed to get bitter? On the eighth time, am I allowed to to plot my revenge? On the eighth time, am I allowed to finally hurt him like he's hurt me? And Jesus' answer stuns Peter. And I believe it ought to stun every single one of us. For Jesus looks at Peter and says, no, Peter, I say unto you not seven times, but until 70 times seven. What's Jesus doing? Because I don't think Jesus is giving Peter a math equation to figure out real quick. You know, like, no, no, Peter, do the math. Get your tally book out. You still have 483 times to go, okay? So you keep track, buddy, and when you get to 490, you go get them, okay? No, that's not, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is certainly not doing what we as parents do with our kids and try to trump his number with a bigger number. Like, no, 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 not seven times. No, 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 70 times seven. You know, that's not what's going on here either. Jesus is actually quoting an Old Testament, or referencing rather, an Old Testament passage way back in Genesis chapter number four. Now, Genesis chapter 4 contains the story of Cain and Abel. That's a good story, isn't it? That's a horrible story. Cain kills Abel, right? The first murder in Scripture, right? And in a little bit of an ironic scene at the end of that narrative, Cain cries out to God as he's being kind of thrown out of, uh, uh, and, and, and is dispelled from the land. He says, well, well now that, that I've killed my, my brother, they're going to try to kill me. And so so the Lord, in an act of compassion, really, puts a mark upon Cain's life. And he says that if anyone takes the life of Cain, well, vengeance will be mine, saith the Lord, sevenfold. Okay, after that, we get a genealogy of Cain. Ah, genealogies. Ah, Cain married this girl, they had this kid, and they got married, and they had a kid. It's like, who cares who's having kids, and who cares who's getting married, you know? But out of that genealogy in Genesis chapter 4 comes this man named Lemek, and Lemek just starts talking randomly. Like, he just starts speaking. And not only does he just start speaking randomly, but he starts speaking randomly in the third person. All right, you ever meet someone like that? Just run, okay? Those people are weird, all right? He says, ye wives of Lemek, hear me. I have slain a child for my wounding. I have killed a young man for my hurting. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lemek shall be avenged seventy and sevenfold. 
All right, quite the confession from our man Limic here. He has just confessed to murdering two children for hurting him, for bruising him. In the Hebrew, the, the, the wording's vague. It's like they, they, they made fun of him or they bruised his ego, so to speak. And so he took ultimate vengeance. He took ultimate rebuke. He took their life. And the ode of Limic is like, you don't mess with Limic. Like, right? Like, like no, no. If the Lord's going to take vengeance sevenfold, well, I'm going to take vengeance seventy and sevenfold, and I'm going to make sure you pay for how you treat me. And you can say what you will about the Ode of Limic, but the Ode of Limic is how our world operates. Our world operates off the Ode of Limic. Minor offenses reserve major requirement, right? Like, like you hurt me minorly, you, you offend me, well, you're going to pay for it. I'm going to make sure you know about it. And bitterness is not about getting even. No, no, no. Bitterness is about keeping the pain in motion. It's about circulating that pain, and it's oftentimes about escalating that pain, that you want to keep it alive. You want to keep it burning because you want to make them hurt more than they made you hurt. You want to make sure they really pay. And so this is the ode of Limic, and Jesus takes this, this, this ode of Limic, and he turns it on its head. And he says, listen, I know you live in a world where, where, where the worldview is that people who hurt you even minorly deserve major consequences. But he says, I want you. The way of Jesus is someone who has hurt you majorly deserves unlimited forgiveness. In other words, he says, no, Peter, you never hold on to grudges. You, you, you never get bitter. You, you never keep score. You always, always, always Offer forgiveness. Um, Jesus, that's real inspirational. Like, that's awesome. 70 times 70. Paint it on a Hobby Lobby sign. Sell it to my mom. She'll buy it. Right? But like, like Jesus, that's not real. Like, that person hurt me. Um, we'll say things like that, that. That person ruined my life. I can't even think about what, what would happen without, without reliving it, without being right back there, without getting angry, without wanting to hit something. Like, like I can't even see them on Facebook without just feeling a, a rush of adrenaline in my chest. I, I, can't, I can't even sleep at night. I toss and I turn. I still get these, these, these dreams. Like, like, Jesus, they hurt me. And I want to acknowledge this morning that you're right. I don't know what's been said or done to you. I don't know the amount of pain or hurt that you've endured. I don't know the depth of betrayal that you have faced. I do not know the wrongs that were done to you. But I do know that what Jesus says here is that my grace is greater. That what I have done for you is greater than what was done to you. Now listen, we can all admit, like let's just be honest, that's a tough truth to swallow. Right? Like I imagine Peter's face looked kind of like your face. Like, okay, I mean you're the rabbi, but. So what Jesus does next is he tells a parable. Now a parable was a, a short story, a, 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 an earthly story that, that, that connected you to a heavenly perspective. It was, this, uh, it was this small, simple story. In this case, it's going to be one that we identify with. It's going to be, it's going to be one that we get lost in emotionally. But, it, but it's the simple story that helps us unlock a complex truth from God, like forgiving your neighbor 70 times 7. 
And so I want to do for the rest of the short time that we've got together this morning is I want to trisect the parable into three parts. And hopefully what, what we discover by the time we like go to lunch is not just how important forgiveness is to God, but more important than that, how important forgiveness is for you and for me. Are you ready? Can, 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 can we do that? All right. So the first section I've labeled as an accounted debt, an accounted debt. Look at verse number 23. He says, therefore, is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Okay, so right off the bat, we're introduced to this uh, king of a kingdom, the CEO type figure. And we don't know a lot about him, but we know that he's a generous king. We know that he has loaned out some money, but we are introduced to him at, uh, at collection day, right? Like he's opening up his books. He's making sure that all the money he has sent out is being paid back, probably with interest, right, to his records. And as he's going over his books, he comes to probably the top of the list, and he finds this guy that owes him 10 thousand talents. Now that sounds like a lot of money. I don't know about you, but to me it sounds like a lot of money, but I don't really know because I don't know what a talent is, okay? So I did some research, and money is hard to transfer. Like currency is difficult to transfer into our vernacular because money is constantly changing, and especially with a term like a talent, because a talent wasn't a, a set amount of money as much as it was a sum weight of your money. And so what I'm just trying to say is that scholars are going to be all over the place when we talk about what a talent is worth. Some will say it's way more than the number I give you. Some will say it's way less. In fact, what I have done is I've taken 10 sources that I kind of trust and picked the median. I've, I've, I've found that the median answer, okay. And, and so the median answer would be that one talent was a year and a half worth of wages for a middle class individual, being about $36,000, okay. Um, that's one talent. This is 10,000 talents. This guy owes $360 million dollars. Yeah, yeah. Now that's an astronomical number. In fact, that's 10 times the national budget in Jesus's day. Like the audience would have laughed because there's no way a king would ever loan that kind of money, nor is there any, nor is there any way a servant would ever need that kind of money. But the, the point that Jesus is painting is clear. This guy owes a debt that he's never paying back. This guy owes a debt to the king that it would take him 30 lifetimes to pay back. And Jesus' application, if you will, is clear, that you owe a debt to God that you're never paying back. That, that, that one day when you stand before God at the judgment, we will give an account of our life to God. Jesus says that every idle word we speak, we shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. It's all going to be brought to God. And he's going to, and God says, listen, when you stand before me, the sobering reality is that apart from Jesus, you are all in deep, 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 deep debt to God. For the Lord looked down upon heaven, upon the children of men, to see if there were any that did good and seek God and understand, but they are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. 
Paul quotes that passage of scripture in Romans 3, just to let us know it's still true as it was in the Psalms for today, when he says, as is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that doeth good. Their heart has is, is become un unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their mouths they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are quick to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of the Lord before their eyes. And we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world might become guilty before God. You've been tried in a court of heaven. Your sin condemns you this morning. As the Bible says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. Neither is there any creature, according to Hebrews, that is not manifested in his sight. God sees all, God knows all, and nothing can be hid from his account. I mean, just think about that for a moment. That, that means that the teacher might never find out about the test you cheated on. But God knows about it. And, and like the college professor may never find out that that paper that I turned in was plagiarized. But God knows about it. And your wife might never find out about the flirting that takes place at work. Your husband might not find out about the affair that happened at the gym. But God knows about those things. You can cleanse your websites, you can purge your history, but God knows every site you've ever looked at. You can get soundproof windows and soundproof doors to try to hide the arguing with your spouse or your children at night from your neighbors, but God hears those arguments. You can even dress the part, get the kids in the car, be frustrated as all get out. Get in the car, we're gonna be late. Hey. Good to see you today. God even knows the pride in our heart when the preacher can't think of our sin on the spot. Yet God knows it all. And it's all going to be judged and accounted dead. Would you know, secondly, with me, an amazing declaration? This story takes several twists and turns that we're not expecting. This guy owes a debt. It's going to take him 30 lifetimes to pay back. He's never paying back the debt. And yet in the next verse, the Bible says in verse 26, that the servant therefore fell down and worshiped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Well, that's a silly thing to say. There's no way you're ever paying back all the debt. It's not happening. The king knows that that's not happening. But yet, the king, in verse 27, the Bible says, then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion. You say, well, why was he moved with compassion? Because he's a compassionate king. He's so compassionate in his nature that he is moved with compassion on this man, that he loosed him. The Greek word there is one of the three words we use in the Greek for grace. So he does for him what he cannot do for himself, and then he forgave him. Now that word forgave literally means to open your hand. It means to, to, to let go or to open up. And so he, he, he's doing for him what he cannot do for himself, and he's opening up his hand of judgment, his hand of torture, his hand of wrath. He's letting him go. He's loosing him and he's forgiving him of the debt. Not what I was expecting. 
Right? Like, like, like this guy, like, like notice, notice, this guy is never paying back the debt. He's never going to pay it back. And yet, yet the king is so moved to compassion that he doesn't just extend the note. He doesn't make it interest only payments. No, no, no. He eliminates the debt completely from the books. As significant as the debt was, the grace of the king was more significant. As significant as his debt was, the grace of the king was more significant. Do you understand that this morning? That this guy owed a debt he could never pay, and yet the king looses him. He does for him what he could never do for himself, and he lets him go out free. Like that guy left that throne room with a burden lifted off his shoulders. He walked out of that, 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 that throne room with this debt that had weighed him down, that he was constantly working to overcome and constantly dealing with, and it affected everything in his life. Now that debt is gone. He got new life. He found real freedom as he left that room. And it was all because of the grace of the king. His freedom was free. But you mark it down, someone absorbed the debt that day. Someone took upon the weight of 10,000 talents. There was a CEO today that forgave a debt of $360 million. We would look at that CEO and say that with all due respect, sir, you're an idiot. You've just bankrupt your business. And that's exactly what's happening in this story. The king is willing to bankrupt the kingdom for the grace and compassion and love of one man. And I just got to tell you, if you don't know how this relates to you this morning, I got some good news for you on a Sunday. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. He saw you in your sin. He saw you in your condemnation. He saw that you could never earn or work your way to God. And so he stepped out of heaven's thrones. He was made in flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. And he went willingly to a cross. He shed his blood willingly for you and for me. And as he hung on that cross, he pulls up on those nails, and he cries, Father! Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says, Lord, let them go. Open up your hand. Put their, put their debt on mine account. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. Oh, as he pulls up on those nails, he cries, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it was at that moment that I believe Jesus took your sin and my sin and and the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future, and he bore them on his back, and he paid our sins penalty. As he pulls up on those nails one last time, he cries the word tetelestai. It's a business term. It means paid in full. They would stamp it with a seal on papers of debt, saying that the debt has been paid for. It has been completed. We can't ask anymore. You're not allowed to give anymore. The debt has been paid. And it's translated beautifully in our Bibles with three little words. It is finished. Listen, this morning, your sin, pay, your, your, your sin debt has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And your salvation is free this morning. But please understand, it costs Jesus everything. Everything. So you can take the blood out of the songbook, but you can't take the blood out of salvation. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. You don't find forgiveness without the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really know what you want to call that, but I call that amazing grace. 
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. For I was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. One of my favorite old hymns is uh, Grace Greater Than All Our Sins. I think it's the third verse that says, Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What could avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you might be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Listen, your sin may be great this morning, but his grace is greater. An amazing declaration. An account of debt. But sadly, that's not where the story ends. Would you notice the third part with me this morning as we kind of close an atrocious display? An atrocious display. This is a disturbing twist in the story. Uh, as much as I would love the story to end, right, right where we just kind of left off, I can't because that's not, Jesus is not just telling the story to remind his disciples that they have been forgiven, right? He's telling the story with an emphasis on Peter's question to remind them the importance that it is that they forgive, right? That they need to go forgive. So, so the story continues, okay? So, so Jesus has hooked us in. Now see how the story finishes. Verse 28, it says, but the same servant... It has to clarify, because we're not going to recognize him here in a second. The same servant went out and found. That word found means that he searched out. He looked for his, uh, he looked for someone on his books. He found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. Now, a pence was a day's worth of wages in this day. So a hundred pence is a hundred days worth of work. Nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere in this story does Jesus say that that's not a significant amount of money. Nowhere does Jesus say that he shouldn't really have all that been bothered by a hundred pence of debt. No, in fact, I was, if I were to judge, I would say that if you went three months without work, um, you'd be hurting a little bit. You'd be living within yourself a little bit. You'd be stretched financially. A hundred days worth of work is a significant amount of money. Jesus is just stating a fact here. He finds a guy that owes him a hundred days worth of work, and he laid hands on him, and he took him by the throat, saying, pay me that thou owest. Okay. All right. So I think this is like best seen illustrated. Okay. So we've got, uh, we got this guy that has just been forgiven 10,000 talents. Like he leaves that throne room, and he's like, Whew. by the skin of my teeth, man. Like, wow. What a what a guy. That guy's awesome. All right, man, who's working in the field today? All right, who's, got, who's in the field today? Who's in the field today? Huh? Brother Jay. Brother Jay, man, good to see you, Brother Jay. Hey, how's work today? Hey, good. All right, come here, Brother Jay. Come here, Brother Jay. Let's go to the back alley where no one's watching, okay? Come over here, Brother Jay, where there's no witnesses. Brother Jay, man, good to see you. You said work's been good. Work's yes. been good. Yeah, hey, pay me what thou owest. Whoa. Oh, he takes him by the throat. Pay me what thou owest. Interesting. Wasn't expecting that. Let's see what happens next. Don't go anywhere. All we've established is that you owe me money, all right? We gotta, we gotta see how this, this might end well for me. All right, let's see here. It says, but the same servant went out, found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant, that's Pastor Jay, 
fell down at his feet. No, don't, don't do that, okay. And he besought him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Does that sound familiar? Oh, I think it should. It's exactly what this guy just said at the foot of the king. So, so please notice that this is key. It's key to understanding this passage, that he is now being asked for the same grace he has just received. Just as the king did for him what he could not do for himself, he is now being asked to do for him what he could not do for himself. Just as the king forgave him, opened up his hand and let him go, forgave the debt, he is now being asked, quite literally, to forgive, to open up your hand and let me go, right? Yet the Bible says, and he would not. So it's the same plea for grace. The only difference is that it's to a much lesser degree. And all that I mean by that is that three months worth of work is less than 30 lifetimes worth of work. Are we all on the same page there? That the grace he had been given is greater than the grace he's being asked to give. And yet the Bible says in verse 30 that he would not. He would not forgive. He would not give him grace. He would not lose him. He would not let him go. But instead, he rather cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Thank you, Jay. Let's give Pastor Jay a hand. But not too much because he does owe me some money, okay? So he's cast into prison. Now remember what happens to this guy. This guy has been cast into prison at his request because he owes him a debt. Okay, I read this story and I get a little angry. I've got a bit of a temper. It's one of my weaknesses. Okay, I'll just say it. it's my sin. I get angry. When I see a story like this, I so represent the first servant. In fact, I would just say that if you know the grace of God in your life this morning, if you've accepted him as your savior, if you've seen what he did on the cross as worthy payments of your sin, well, then you have to see yourself as the first servant. Like, that's my story. I owed a debt to God I can never get rid of. And yet he graciously paid my debt. This is me. And yet this guy that represents me in the story goes and he chokes out Pastor Jay. I don't want to be that guy. I happen to like Pastor Jay. He seems like a good guy, right? So like I read the story and I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. That guy's a loser. And so I say, I hope the king finds out about this. Because I don't think the king's going to be too happy about all the shenanigans going out in the fields. And that's exactly what happens. The Bible says in the next verse, verse 31, the fellow servants, when they saw what was done, they were very sorry, and they came and told their Lord all that had happened. Then, look at the next verse, verse 32, then the Lord, after that he had called him, okay, so the king knows, he calls this guy back into his throne room, then, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, and I'm licking my lips a little bit like, yes, come on, give this guy what he deserves. He says, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Now, we can all understand that's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, but it's too late for you, bucko. Like, it's time for you to pay. 
It's time for you to be, for, for you to get it, you know? And so, man, that's exactly what happens. Then his Lord was wroth, and he delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. And I stand up and say, Woohoo! Justice is served, baby! We got him! Yes! Story over. Close the Bible. Let's go about our day. And then I realized there's another verse to the chapter. I, I don't know what Jesus could possibly add to that ending. Like, Jesus, it was perfect. What more could you possibly need to say? So likewise, shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, Eric Getch, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. And suddenly I find myself sitting down and saying, Come on, Lord, give, give him another shot. Like, now he'll forgive. Why, why, why is it that we do that? Why is it that when this is just some no-name servant in Scripture, we've got no problem condemning him to the tormentors till he should pay what was due? Like, yeah, baby, justice is served. But suddenly now when there's a so likewise, it's you. It's like, well, come on, Lord, where's your mercy? But where's your compassion? You know why that is? Because for me, at least, we have this philosophy that it's mercy for me, justice for everybody else. You deserve justice. I deserve mercy. Oh, officer, was I really going 80 in the school zone? <laughs> I am so sorry. I'm just trying to get to church, <laughs> preaching this morning. Excited. Please have mercy on me. But when someone cuts you off in traffic, you demand his license to be taken away. You say all sorts of mean things about the cops when, when they don't pull him over. Right? It's justice for you, mercy for me. And Jesus comes into that narrative and says, uh-uh, that is not the way it works. You cannot receive my grace and then refuse to give it to others. No, no, no. If you have received the grace of God, then you now have the responsibility. You have the obligation to go out and give that grace to the person who hurt you the most and the person who deserves it the least. You say, whoa, whoa, you had me until you said that last line because uh, they hurt me. Like, like, I, you don't know the whole story. They don't deserve it. Um, uh, they haven't earned it. They're not truly sorry yet. Uh, can I just say, we don't forgive people because they're truly sorry yet. We're not commanded to forgive people because they deserve it or not. We're not commanded to forgive people based on whether they have learned their lesson. No, no, remember our verse that, that we are to forgive one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Simply put, we are told to forgive because we have been forgiven. We forgive because one day on Calvary, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. And not for our sins only, right? But for the sins of every creature, every man, every woman, every child. He poured his blood out and he forgave them. He forgave you and he forgave the person who hurt you. And if he can forgive, and he says that's the basis for you to forgive. You say, but, but that's not fair. They, 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 they owe me. They, they owe me an explanation. They owe me a childhood. They owe me a marriage. Maybe they owe you a lot of money. I don't know. You just say, man, they owe me something. At least, at very least, an explanation, an apology. That's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. It's grace. And you'll never be asked to give more than you have already received from God. That's what we're learning in this parable. 
that the grace you have received from Jesus is far greater than the grace you're being asked to give to the person who hurt you. Wow. Now, before we go home, I want to clarify something. Because I'm afraid if I don't, we will leave with a, um, oh, I don't want to say it. This is Orange County, so I got to be careful. We, we want, we, I don't want to leave with a messed up view of God, okay? If I was in the South, I would have said jacked up view, but, but we're not. So, so a messed up view of God, okay? Like, like, like God seems important, want to get him right, so let, let's get him right and then go home this morning, okay? So like this last verse has caused like all sorts of chaos in theology. Like everyone looks at this last verse. And it's important because oftentimes when Jesus gives a parable, he doesn't always give us a so likewise statement. But there's not always this application at the end where he clearly states why he's telling the parable. Sometimes Jesus just ends the story and he lets it linger and we're meant to wrestle with what it was all about. But in this case, he gives us a so likewise. So it's important, like we should probably look at the so likewise. So what, what was his reason for telling the parable? He says, so likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. So if I were to sum up what Jesus is, is, is trying to get his disciples to, to gather here, it's that the fate of the man in the story is going to be your fate if you do not learn how to sincerely forgive those who hurt you. Okay, like to me, that's what he's saying. All right, so what happens to the man in the story? This is where all of it gets all messed up. In verse 34, it says, his Lord was wroth and he delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Now, I think there's two ways we can read that. Uh, one way we can read it is that his Lord was wroth, and he delivered him, the servant, unto the tormentors, till he, the servant, should pay all that was due unto him, the king. Right? And if that's the case, how much does he owe the king? 10,000 talents. And how long then is he going to be in the tormentors' den? Well, well, forever. Like everlasting judgment. We would call that hell. We, we, we would say that this guy now is not forgiven. This guy is now sent to condemnation. He is burning in hell to this day because he did not forgive those who uh, hurt him. And I would say that if you want to read it that way, you're wrong. I mean, I mean at least you have a, I've got a big problem. I've got this massive problem. Because if that's the case then this guy's sins were never forgiven. His debt was never really paid. His debt was just put on hold until he did something the king didn't like, and then he put it back on. This guy truly wasn't forgiven. This guy uh, didn't really have new life. No, the moment he made a mistake, his sin was put right back on his shoulders. And if that's the way that, that you think your salvation works, I just got to say, you make the death of Jesus very insignificant. Like, I believe on Calvary, Jesus paid it all. That, that when Jesus says, it is finished, there's not an asterisk. There's not like a microscopic thing at the bottom that's like, unless you mess up. Unless you don't forgive. I don't know. When Jesus says, it is finished, he meant it. He paid for it. And what he said, he sealed with his resurrection. Like, amen. Our sins are paid for today. So I think there's another way to read this verse. I think you can read it, that this Lord was wroth, and he delivered him to the tormentors till he, the servant, should pay all that was due unto him, the servant. 
And what is owed unto the servant in the story? A hundred pence. And I believe what the king is saying is he is going to send him to the same fate he sent Pastor Jay to. And he's going to say, listen, you're going to be in the tormentor's den until you learn how to let him out. You're going to sit in this tormentor's den for as long as you're willing to make him sit in the tormentor's den. But if you'll learn how to forgive like you've been forgiven, if you'll learn how to let him out, well, then you'll get let out too. And I love that because that's exactly what bitterness does, my friends. Bitterness binds you in a prison of your own making. And Jesus today has given you a key. And he's putting you in prison. You, you feel tormented by your bitterness. You feel tormented by your anger and your wrath and the hurts that have been done to you. But you have a key out this morning. You're in the prison, but you hold the key. Because forgiveness happens when you set someone else free and you realize that who really got set free was you. Forgiveness is setting someone free and then realizing who really got set free was you. See, we think bitterness uh, hurts them. But as someone has said, bitterness is the poison we drank, hoping it affects somebody else. You're the one hurting today. You're the one who can't sleep. You're the ones whose relationships are infected by mistrust. You're the one who, whose stomach is in knots, you can't eat. You haven't been right in years. And Jesus says, listen, when you forgive, you sleep better tonight. Well, it's not that the pain goes away. It's not that you forget. Oftentimes, I believe forgiving is remembering the hurt that's been done, but choosing not to act on that hurt, but rather give it to God and let him be God and you be free. So this morning, we've got a choice because I believe there is life-changing power in forgiveness. But we have to open the cell. We've got to let them out so that we can be let out. Can I say that the next time that the thoughts of what was done to you start triggering those emotions of pain and hurt and bitterness, man, hold them up. Realize they're not sparking joy. And by the grace of God, turn your eyes to what Jesus did for you. Because what Jesus did for you is far greater than anything anyone has ever done to you. His grace is greater. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.